why won't atheists swear on the Bible? Why do some people swear on the Bible if they don't believe it's true? Welcome to the Transformative Duff. My name is Rabbi Daniel Friedman. Today we are on page 88 of Tractate Silvus, and we learn the incredible power of the Word of God. Welcome to the Transformative Duff, and thank you for being my Chavrusa today. I like to begin with a story. In one of the narrow lanes of the Basis Shell neighborhood in Jerusalem stands a large, handsomely built synagogue. For a hundred years, a marble plaque affixed to its north wall has borne the legend. For everlasting remembrance in the house of God, this synagogue has been erected by the generosity of a donor, whose name shall remain hidden and concealed, who contributed a sum of 110 Napoleons of gold. For many years, it was presumed that the funds were provided by one of the wealthy citizens of Jerusalem who wished to preserve his charity from the taint of pride by remaining anonymous. Few knew the true identity of the donor and the story behind the donation. Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Porosh was a man of modest means. Though large sums of money passed through his hands, he was the secretary of one of the Kola societies which supported the poor Jews of Jerusalem with funds collected for that purpose throughout the diaspora. Rabbi Shlomo Zalman was responsible for the sustenance of several hundred families whose support had been pledged by the Jewish community of Minsk and its environs in White Russia. One year, as Pesach approached, the arrival of funds was delayed. Rabbi Shlomo knew that the money would be forthcoming, but in the meantime, the families for whom he was responsible had to be provided with matzahs, wine, and other festival needs. He therefore turned to a neighbor of his, Reb Fivish Stoller, a carpenter who had worked hard all his life and had managed to put aside a considerable sum. Fivish agreed to lend him his life savings, 200 Napoleons of gold, until the money would arrive from abroad. Shortly after Passover, the long-awaited messenger arrived from Minsk. The purse that he brought contained only 110 Napoleons, but an accompanying letter promised that the remainder was on the way. Rabbi Shlomo lost no time in bringing the money to his neighbor. Several weeks later, the rest of the money arrived, but when Rabbi Shlomo brought the 90 gold coins to Rabbi Fivish, a most unpleasant surprise awaited him. The elderly carpenter, whose memory had begun to fail him, had lost all recollection of the first payment and was adamant in his insistence that he had received nothing of the 200 Napoleons owed. No written contract recorded the loan or the payment, for the two men had absolute trust in each other. Now they had no recourse but to present their case before the basin of the venerated chief rabbi of Jerusalem, Rabbi Shmuel Salant. From a halakhic standpoint, this was a textbook case. The borrower admits the loan, but claims that a partial payment has been made, which the lender denies. This is a classic example of Moda Bemixas, one who partially admits an otherwise unsupportable claim. In such a case, the burden of proof rests with the lender, but the borrower must take a biblical oath in affirmation of his argument. Upon hearing the verdict of the basin, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman turned pale. Never in his life did he imagine that he would be required to take an oath in court, never mind a biblical oath performed upon a Torah scroll. He begged to be given several days to think the matter over. When the basin reconvened, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman announced that he was prepared to pay the disputed 110 Napoleons out of his own pocket rather than take an oath. He only asked that he be given a few weeks to raise the money. Fivish Stolo agreed and it appeared that the matter had been settled. But Rabbi Shmuel Salant would not allow this arrangement. I'm sorry, he said to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman. But this is not a private matter that can be settled between the litigants. It involves communal funds. As one who is entrusted with charity monies, your honesty must be beyond reproach. Unless it is decisively established that the money was paid as you claim, people will talk. I therefore insist that you take the oath. 
Again, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman requested and was granted a short respite. For three days he fasted, wept, and recited psalms. On the fourth day he came before the Basin and swore that he had paid 110 Napoleons to five-ish stola. Shortly thereafter, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman put up his modest home for sale. To his family he explained that he had intended to sell the house in order to avoid taking the oath and now he did not want to benefit from money that he had saved by swearing on a Torah scroll. To the proceeds of the sale, he added almost all of his savings to make the son of 110 Napoleons, which he presented to a committee that was raising money to build a new synagogue. His only stipulation was that no mention should be made of the source of the money. Several months later, Favistola appeared in the small apartment to which Rabbi Shlomo had moved after the sale of his home. Without a word, he placed on Rabbi Shlomo Zalman's table a purse containing 110 Napoleons of gold which he had uncovered in a drawer in his workshop. Let's look at today's Gemara. Says the Mishnah, If a single witness testifies that the Ketubah money has already been paid, the woman can only claim payment if she takes an oath, swearing that she has not been paid. Says the Gemara, Rava taught, The oath is a rabbinic enactment in order to put the husband's mind at ease. But Papa says if he is astute, he could cause her to take a biblical oath as follows. He now gives her the payment of her entire Ketubah sum in the presence of one witness and joins the first witness to the last witness so that there are now two witnesses to the payment and then he transforms the original payment into a loan and claims payment of that sum from her supported by the testimony of the first witness. Explains Rashi, For a biblical oath one must use God's name or epithet and hold the Torah in his hand and it's very serious. Whereas for a rabbinic oath, it's merely an oath with the penalty of a curse attached to it. Let's analyze the Gemara. Why do we make an individual swear on a Torah before court? If he's a criminal, why would we expect him to tell the truth? If someone has no problem stealing, why would we presume that he would think twice about lying? But even in secular courts in Western countries, it's become the accepted norm to swear on a Bible. This bothers many atheists who refuse to take the Bible and insist on making an affirmation of truth. But what are these atheists afraid of? If they don't believe in the divinity of the Bible, making an oath while placing their hand upon the Bible should not concern them whatsoever. And yet many are so concerned that they flatly refuse to do it. What difference does the oath make? What is the extraordinary power that swearing on the Torah exhibits? Clearly, there's something about swearing God's name upon his written word that makes a profound and indelible impression upon even those completely removed from the realm of the divine. Every human being was created in the image of God, regardless of whether or not he's willing to acknowledge his Selah Malachim. And so, from the most hardened crook to the most stubborn atheist, there is something terrifying about taking a false oath in God's name. The crook might be willing to swindle his neighbor, but he would never defy God. In fact, our sages tell us that even a thief prays before setting out on his mission of crime. Likewise, the repudiation of the Bible by the atheist signifies not a disbelief, but a sense of trepidation. Many atheists remove God from their lives because they're not willing to deal with the tough questions of life's purpose and their spiritual responsibility. Their rejection of the Bible is yet another example of their innermost repressed struggles with themselves and their spark of the divine. Certainly swearing by God's name over the Torah or a Bible makes the most sense to people who claim to live according to God's word in the Torah. In the Western world, until the time of the Enlightenment, most Jews and Christians believed that the Bible is a document of eternal truth, the literal word of God. And so to deviate from the truth under an oath of the Bible would have been unfathomable. 
The Enlightenment, however, introduced new ideas to Western thought. People began to question and demystify every aspect of their lives, including religion. Biblical criticism grew in popularity, and many Jews and Christians adopted the documentary hypothesis theory and ceased to believe in the truth of the Torah. It wasn't that they no longer believed in God. After all, they still considered themselves religious individuals. Rather, they stopped believing in the divine authorship and eternal truth of the Torah. They believed that the Bible was written by various authors and inspired by ancient ways of thinking. Consequently, many elements of the Torah that did not accord with their modern sensibilities, they treated as no longer binding or merely allegorical. But now they walk into court and here's the problem. How can anyone who believes the Bible is the handiwork of mortal men and open to change take an oath over it? If the Bible's truth can change and be reinterpreted, what use is it as a moral compass? If the truth of the Bible is malleable and open to interpretation, then what's the use of swearing over it to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Whose truth are we talking about? A number of years ago, Rabbi Nibbatya and I were honored to attend the swearing-in of Judge Daniel Zalmanowitz, as he became the fourth ever Orthodox Jewish judge in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. What impressed us most about the ceremony was that when it came time to swear, Judge Zalmanowitz put his yarmulke on his head, placed his hand upon his art scroll Tanakh, and took the oath. It was clearly a moment that he took with the utmost seriousness, understanding that an oath on the Bible was a religious act, a moment when he was advancing his divine mission here on earth, a moment of truth. The Torah is sacred. It is the ultimate source of truth. If you start to question the truth of the Bible, you will find that the entire foundation of your value system and indeed Western civilization itself will be called into question. May you forever accept, embrace, and affirm by the eternal, never-changing truth, wishing you a transformative day. Thank you for tuning into the Transformative Duff Podcast with Rabbi Daniel Friedman. Whether you've been doing Duff Yomi for years or you're not quite ready to commit but want to be part of the Duff Yomi global movement, there's something in the Transformative Duff for everyone. It's about joining the conversation. It's about talking over the Duff with your family, your friends, your colleagues. It means never being short of a discussion starter or a meaningful Dvar Every page of the Gemara, every word, every letter contains the secrets of the universe. To achieving a life of simcha and purpose, transform your life today. The Transformative Daf is published by Mosaica Press and available at all good Jewish bookstores and online from mosaicapress.com. Thank you, The Transformative Daf.